Welcome to the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I'm Kyla Daw, and I'm glad you decided to join us on today's episode of the show that is shaping how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Rather than advice from experts, our listeners want to hear the insights and ideas from those who, just like them, are on the front lines every day, building meaningful relationships that translate into meaningful support for causes that they and their donors care about. Every week, we invite our guests to have a real conversation about what it means to be a fundraising professional. We're after a greater understanding of what it means to be one of the sector's critically important yet least understood roles, while giving honest answers to our profession's most difficult questions. Thank you for joining us in this episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. Here's your host, author, fundraiser, and master trainer, Jason Lewis. Hi, podcast listeners. This is Jason Lewis, and I am your host for the Fundraising Talent Podcast. I want to thank you for joining us today for the show that's shaping the way that the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to thank our sponsor, QBAC. There's a big difference between a solution that measures a fundraiser's performance and a solution that helps fundraisers perform. QBAC helps fundraisers to excel at their most critical task, developing deep, personal relationships with donors and cultivating them into lifelong partners. Give your fundraisers a better qualified portfolio, one that considers more than just capacity and simple scoring. Your fundraisers will also get insight into their hearts, minds, and connections of their prospects. Fundraisers have a tough job. Help them close bigger gifts in less time by going to www.qback.com to schedule a free demo. Also, how about being our next host for the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow? Our team at Responsive is looking forward to getting back on the road in 2022. If your organization would like to be a host location, let's schedule a time to chat. The Responsive Fundraising Roadshow provides six hours of the best fundraising training out there based on Responsive's four sense-making tools. Hosting Responsive's Roadshow is not like hosting a major conference that requires months of planning and all types of resources. All you need to do is provide us with a safe learning environment for 25 to 40 adult professionals in your community who want to understand how highly effective fundraising really works. There's no cost to your organization, and we will reimburse you for all related expenses. If your organization would like to host the Responsive Fundraising Roadshow, reach out to me today. Before I introduce today's guest, let me say that we're having important conversations here on the Fundraising Talent Podcast with individuals whose voices matter in the fundraising space and the nonprofit sector in general. Sometimes our opinions clash and sometimes they align. What's important is that we're having the conversation. If you have an opinion, whether I agree with you or not, let's hear it, let's elevate it, and let's wrestle with it. I want you to influence my thinking on these things. And more importantly, I want your ideas and opinions to influence the thousands of listeners who are downloading our podcast every month. If you want to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, reach out and let's make sure you're included in an upcoming lineup. Hi, Sam. I am delighted to have you back on the Fundraising Talent Podcast. You are one of my earliest guests. Uh, those who have been listening to the Fundraising Talent Podcast for for quite some time will probably remember that, uh, Sam, you might have been my first or certainly my second guest in the UK when we started this thing, and now we're creeping up on... Um, I think by the time this this conversation broadcasts, we will be at over 300 very meaningful conversations, um, very unscripted and uh, important conversations that I think a lot of people around the globe and the fundraising community are learning to appreciate. So uh, in this one, I think we're going to really enjoy diving into because you've recently been a contributor to our journal here at Responsive. 
So I'm looking forward to having this conversation. Sam, before we dive into that content, how about you just introduce yourself to our listeners? Hi, listeners. My name is Sam Butler. I work for Starlight Children's Foundation, which is based in the UK and aims to provide and protect play for seriously ill children in both their hospital, hospice or home setting. Um, I've been fundraising for about 20 years. It'll be 20 years in February next year. I spent 10 years working directly for an agency group that specialised in mass acquisition campaigns. And I then went to St John Ambulance, worked at Tibet Relief Fund, and I'm now at Starlight. So I have a, a good kind of experience in terms of top 100 charity at St John, a very small charity at Tibet Relief Fund. And I'd say Starlight is that kind of beautiful in-between charity where we're agile, we're small enough to um, do things quickly and implement things quickly. Um, so, yeah, that's me. So, Sam, you're a recent contributor to our responsive journal. For my listeners, you can go on our website at Responsive, and I'll certainly put this on the uh, in the show notes as well. If you'd like to download a free copy of our winter edition of the Responsive Carefully and Critically Journal, you're certainly welcome to do that. Um, and if you're interested in contributing to that, to my listeners as well, you're also welcome to contribute as well. Please reach out to us if you'd like to talk about doing that. Sam, before we dive into the content, I do want to acknowledge that you're a big fan of uh, Mr. Springsteen. And I probably <laughs> would have guessed that in knowing you, having gotten to know you, um, I probably would have guessed that. But uh, uh, in the name of you, the title of your uh, the title of your article is a direct reference to some of Spring, Springsteen's stuff. Um, so uh, tell us a little bit about that before we uh, get into the serious stuff. Um, I was fortunate enough to have parents of a particular age. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and I think the, the, the first album I, I, I remember kind of listening to on vinyl quite frequently was Greetings from Asbury Park. Um, mm -hmm. And I've just always liked strong narratives. And I think Springsteen is a great storyteller. And that resonates with me obviously, as a professional fundraiser. Um, but I think he gives a voice to groups of people that are often oppressed, um, whose story isn't known. Um, I think he's fallible, like all good human beings, and can talk about his vulnerabilities very openly, um, which I admire, in, especially in men of that generation, because I think it's often not that common. Um, and we can get onto that a bit later. Um, and <laughs> guy stuff, I, right? I just think politically, he 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 aligns with me very much. So um, I yeah. think that he, you know, the greatest misunderstood rock song ever written, probably born in the USA, um, with Reagan wanting to use it as a campaign message back in the eighties. Yeah, exactly. Um, gives you quite a big glimpse into how misunderstood it perhaps was um we we, so, we yeah. have a tendency in the u.s to turn anything into a marketing campaign i think that that i think that narrative has played out a couple of times where where uh, uh politicians and others have hijacked what is true art meaningful art and uh and interpreted it as and, and utilized it as a marketing gimmick so yeah i mean one of my favorite <laughs> quotes from him ends the article actually where it's that kind of consistency of thought action and purpose over a long period of time um and i think that's that's kind of what's gone wrong a little bit within the sector over in the uk is that i think 
I think there's been a real lack of consistency of thought, purpose and action over a long period of time. Um, or you could argue that maybe there's been too much of the same level of consistency over a long period of time, which lacks innovation. But I would say that for me, Springsteen's always changed the story and made what he's singing about relevant from an artistic perspective. And, you know, it's pretty wide ranging. I, I mean, my, my wife would completely disagree with me and say that he lacks any <laughs> level of funk whatsoever um, as somebody that's much more into prints. But um, yeah, I think he's that, you know, he's got that Woody Guthrie journeyman thing down, but um, also he can fill Wembley even now. Um and rock out to 80,000 people. So. so Sam in the article, and I don't want to unravel every, every, every square inch of it, but I do want to give an opportunity to you to, to sort of unravel these, what you refer to as sort of these four threats that you think the fundraising community is in some ways sort of, sort of facing, I guess we could say, or encountering. Uh, but, but, but I think the first observation you make, which I think was very enlightening and, and somewhat encur- and certainly encouraging was that the pandemic, this, this sort of time period of the pandemic that we've just recently begun to see sort of the lights at the end of the tunnel, perhaps, um, <clears throat> is that it has given the fundraising community some time to do some more rigorous contemplation and reflection rather than sort of this reaction and as you're describing in the UK of, of sort of combating the the negative headlines, for example, in the press. You know, if you think about everything that was sort of playing out up until the the pandemic sort of became our day-to-day reality, um, a lot of what you all were navigating constantly there was just this sort of constant barrage of attacks from the, the from the media. And then and then with the pandemic sort of putting a more positive spin on sort of the role that the nonprofit community sort of plays. It gave you all an opportunity to sort of perhaps do some more inter-reflect sort of in- introspection, I guess you could say. Is that sort of where you're getting at? Yeah, I think so. I think especially from a, a I mean, there's a term that's banned around called EDI, which kind of would either be interpreted as equity, diversity and inclusion or equality, diversity and inclusion. Um, so I think that there's been, some fundamental changes in some organizations. Um, I, I name check several individuals in the article um, who I think are kind of incredibly forward thinking. And in fact, I met with one of them just over two weeks ago, um, Martha. Um, and th- she's, she's, she's sort of heartened by some big organizations, um, British Red Cross and Shelter in particular, who she thinks are kind of leading the way in not just publicly declaring they're doing the right thing, but actually seriously removing internal structures that have stood for a very, very long time and acted as a symbolic sort of institutional level of racism, actually, or certainly a sort of a symbolic um, block to making them more accessible to people that don't tend to get senior roles within the charity sector. You know, the, the first threat you reference here in this list is this, this sort of this response, this response to the George Floyd tragedy. And I, I, I think, uh, and you, you reference the idea of box ticking. I, I think, um, I think what I most appreciated about the response to what was a very tragic worldwide sort of uh, experience for all of us is the idea that 
they're, 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 they're all of a sudden sort of um, as a response to that particular incident, there was an intolerance for some of this performative sort of response. It was like, look, you're either going to do this or you're not going to do it, but don't just sort of play around it. You know, again, almost getting back to the idea of marketing gimmicks, right? Um, it, 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 we're not going to tolerate some of this sort of performative behavior. Um, if you're really going to respond to this in a positive way, you're going to have to really do that. I mean, is, is that sort of what you're getting at? Yeah. I mean, I think it's, <laughs> you know, I'm privileged in the fact that I'm married to a black woman and I have two mixed race children yep. who bring me much closer to yep. a lived reality that I don't actually live myself. So I'm always quite cautious as a middle-class white middle-aged man um, when I talk about this. But I think that there's a duty, um, you know, there's been several books written about this in terms of the fact that the black community in particular um, is very tired of having to educate white people of yeah. privileged backgrounds around what is or what is not racism or racist. And I also think that there is an incredibly um, charged <coughs> um, reaction from privileged white individuals around being told that what they've done is racist. I think there's this, you know, rather than seeing racism as a spectrum, um, everybody immediately thinks you're accusing them of being Hitler. And I think we need to take some responsibility uh, to educate ourselves. So that's the first thing I started to do in June of 2020. Yeah. Um, and I don't think that all charitable organisations took that approach. You know, ch charities are made up of people. People make that culture of that organisation. If everybody in that organisation educates themselves or the, or the organisation helps to educate people on unconscious bias, on structures, on policies, on processes, um, then you can, you can start to make change. But it's, you know, the, the moral arc bends in the right direction, um, but it's a gradual process. And I think there's a balance in between the two. There's this charged atmosphere of everybody wanting change tomorrow, um, which is very ideological. And there's a willingness to do that change and work with people and form allyships and collaborate. And there's a, we want to be seen to be part of this, the smoke and mirrors aspect, that kind yeah. of PR brand comm right. piece, that if you just push that information out there, you think it's going to attract a positive reaction. Um, but I think that's just not going to wash anymore. I think that's what we're seeing. I think we saw it with Trump. I mean, I don't think Biden was a particularly wonderful um, individual in terms of the, the you know, the, the canon of great leaders the U.S. has had. But he was the lesser of two evils. And I think, yeah. again, you've got to kind of move away from this ideological sense of and this is very much about my values and my beliefs and people have the right to disagree. But I think it's the fact that the level of that disagreement, especially in a lockdown environment where most communications were happening, where people could hide a little bit, probably be ruder, far more aggressive. Personally, I had a friendship that I'd had for a very long time that as a result of 
communication over WhatsApp really deteriorated very quickly. Yeah. Um, and I think it's about that kind of clarity of we're not all awful people. We're not all wonderfully good, clean people. We're, we're people, we're human beings. And I think that, that, you know, where you saw that very right left rhetoric going on and then this horrendous situation happening, you know, very shortly before the election um, in the US, that you saw how that polarised um, level of, of kind of political state um, led to this, the, the situation that it did in terms of, you know, what happened at the Capitol building. Um, certainly, um, I think that there's a charged sense of confidence in people having racist ideologies and being able to feel that, the, you know, the fact that the leader of the free world, for want of a better word, was was saying some things that were very charged, gave a kind of a level of confidence to that behaviour. And I think the sector has, in the UK, we have a thing called the, the Lobbying Act, which I think was passed in 2014. And it seemed to politically try to remove, I would say, that kind of level of activism that had probably been very much part of the UK kind of charitable movement for quite a long time so you know organizations like friends of the earth ngos like greenpeace um you know it was very much a part of those movements and sometimes frowned upon by the more right-leaning um but i think that you can see charities beginning to harness that energy again i think you know there is definitely a movement amongst children as young as my daughter who's 15 um, and was very active on social media around the George Floyd moment and I think it's about how a charity is going to start harnessing that movement again and how are they going to use that politically to put pressure um, on the lobbyists to make changes that are for the good of society rather than I think for a lot of the last sort of 15 years we've seen or even longer um, but we've seen corporates come in and lobby government. Um, and, I, you know, I think that we have to remind ourselves that these individuals work for us. They don't work for corporates. Um, and, you know, I don't want to go and to get too far left leaning. But I do think that charities have a really important role to play in influencing government policy yes. so that our society is fairer and actually looks after the people that that are forgotten. So your second point uh, about how the sector in particular is sort of embracing movements of change, both support supporting us in, in the fundraising community and certainly on political and economic and socioeconomic, socioeconomic sort of uh, perspectives. The, um, <clears throat> the thing that comes to mind, sort of an observation that I'm sort of seeing play out in the fundraising community. And some of this is because I, I've been somewhat deliberate about the communication and the conversations that I've been having here on the podcast and some of the dialogue that I interact with on social media, for example. And this is sort of along the lines of some of what you've just said, but there's still, there, there, there tends to be within our sector and within the, which, even if we sort of narrow that down into within the fundraising community, we, we sort of seem still to seem to have to the two camps that store still very much want to sort of exist along the very divisive political lines, for example, 
and 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 it becomes a lot of stone throwing to people who are perhaps on the wrong side of some political some sort of issue. Um, but there does seem to be, and I'm starting to find where these people hide, and some of them are a little more obvious than others. There does tend to see a, be a certain graciousness among some of us that are sort of saying, "Hey, you know, I may not be as woke as you are, perhaps, but we can have some meaningful conversations." You know, I like to think that having hour-long conversations on a podcast is much more productive than necessarily trying to, you know, throw stones in 140 characters, for example, on Twitter. Um, You know, that's something that sort of plays out within the sector itself and within the fundraising community. Am I right? Yeah, to some extent. I mean, I think fundraising teams I've worked in in the past have probably erred towards the left. Um, That's not to say that everybody in the organization that I've worked at does. Sure. Um, I think going back to Trump and his rhetoric around trust of news and fake news really did not help things at all. I think there's some really commendable journalists and news platforms that provide you with a balanced, non-agendered perspective. Um, but I think there's some that have a huge voice that are very agendered. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> you know, I found I found myself almost kind of. Um, from a newspaper perspective, I found myself quite homeless over the last sort of five, six years, probably since Brexit in the UK, um, because I don't like being manipulated by a news item that's telling me I should feel a particular way. What I like to do is listen to lots of people. You know, my, I would say one of my biggest values is community, and I think being part of a community is accepting the fact that people will have different views to the ones that you hold yourself. But a successful community finds a way of using everybody to make that community work for everybody. Um, And when you start trying to exclude people from that community through printing misinformation, through using very, um, I was going to say flammable, but that's not the word I I meant, but but that sort of that explosive (laughs) rhetoric that's charged with a particular kind of intent to discriminate and isolate and um, victimise individuals and blame, you know, very much back to what Hitler did with the Jews back in the, the, the sort of lead up to the Second World War. And I also think that there's, you know, going back to this kind of sense of like um, history and what we can learn from it, you know, a lot of what happened in the UK was kind of charged with a sense of, you know, not only do we have to educate ourselves around the history of racism, the history of inclusion, certain individuals being excluded, we also have to think about how history was actually written. And there's lots of stuff, you know, particularly around the Second World War, where we celebrate certain individuals and act as if, you know, we were there to free the Jews from concentration camps. Most people were completely unaware of what was happening to the Jewish population um, until the troops actually arrived at Auschwitz and concentration camps and uncovered this horror. So it wasn't like that we were we were motivated to fight the Germans due to the fact that they were persecuting and killing Jews. It was, you know, it was more about empire building and preventing 
and you know somebody else from starting to build an empire across one that we we kind of like to think of as our own um so yeah it's it's tough um but i think that that reflection means that you become better at listening to all voices i think part of the problem in terms of change within our sector is that there have not been a diverse enough group of people at the table when it comes to making decisions you know i think sometimes it's it's not necessarily all about making sure that you've got a board that's completely reflective of the racial breakdown and disabled breakdown of the of the society you live in that would be an ideal i think it's about making sure that you've got a, a kind of set of processes in place that allow individuals within your organization that might be representative of those groups to help you make the right decision for your organization strategically from a policy perspective um, from a process perspective from the delivery of your services you know i think that if you're a charity that is you know delivering services to individuals within your society you need to make sure that they're, they're accessible by everybody um, Otherwise, you're excluding people that probably would need them more than others. So it's that kind of sense of, you know, really ensuring that those most in need are the ones that are um, prioritized to receive it. So the the third point that you are, you sort of pose it as a question, Sam, how we can read, how can we redefine an industry that has been built around us initially to support us, but has become parasitic in a way that is often, that often perpetuates bad practice? Unravel that a little bit for us. So I, I started off working for a group of agencies that um, dealt in mass acquisition. Um, I think that the model of those businesses having, you know, the business I actually started working for was it came from an in-house team. Um, face-to-face have been set up by the Royal London Society for the Blind. Um, They found a model of acquiring regular givers that really worked for them. And I think the director of fundraising at the time decided that that was a business model that he'd like to set up and start um, providing that service to other charities. And it wasn't monopolised. It was a service that, you know, at the time we had incredibly small charitable organizations that would ask for a few hundred new regular givers and we had very large well-known household name charities that would come to us and ask for tens of thousands of new regular givers and i think to use a phrase that my mum would often say to me as i was tucking into yet another packet of biscuits um, she would often say everything in moderation um, and I think it's, I think an agency needs to be able to provide a service for a charity of any size and for it to work for them from a cost perspective and an income perspective. And I think what you've ended up seeing is the monopolization of a lot of those agency led channels of acquisition. And because they've invested so heavily in it for such a long period of time. They have a, they've collected a backlog of supporters that justify continuing to use that method of fundraising. So if you had started to invest in face-to-face acquisition in the early 
noughties, you by now would have a file of 250, 300,000 plus um, active supporters. You'd probably have got just as many who have not, you've not managed to retain. And so they've, you know, that the attrition levels on that particular file would be big. Um, The experience that that model gives somebody as an individual um, is incredibly dated. And I think increasingly charities need to start looking at developing products that fit the lifestyle of, of those individuals that would like to engage with them. It doesn't always mean that they necessarily want something in return, but I think a more kind of subscription type basis is beginning to see some traction here in the UK. Um, Mind in particular have a, have a box. So Mind is a mental health based UK charity, pretty big household name. They have a a box that they would send to you once a month um, with kind of mindfulness techniques, things to improve your mental well-being. um, And you pay a subscription to that. And obviously the cost of that box being sent to you outweigh, you know, it's they make more money to push back into their charitable purpose than it costs them to send you that box. But they're delivering their charitable service through that fundraising product. Um, You know, that's a very interesting. So most of my listeners and you're aware I've been working on this project that I'm hopeful to wrap up by the by the Christmas holiday here that's closely coming to us. but you're making a an interesting critique and a, a sort of a subtle recommendation to the what we expect of the um, what we would consider to be sort of our experts in our field um, that, that that the advice given or the systems that we advocate for or the products that we sell, whatever you know the solutions that we um, advocate for should have a sort of a universal usefulness and value to the to the sector and to the organizations, perhaps regardless of the size that they are. Um, and, and, and part of what your critique is, and I certainly concur you and I have talked about this before is, is the same thing that happens in any other, any industry. When we look at the commercial sector, you know, the, the, the observation is, is that the, you know, it's really only the largest enterprises that can sort of rely on in a very exploitive sort of system, a system that's based on purely volume and efficiency only really works in our country, for example, you know, with a company like Walmart or McDonald's. But those are also the companies that routinely get accused of exploitation that, you know, they don't end up in the Wall Street Journal under a positive headline for changing the world. They get accused of exploiting their employees, exploiting their customers, exploiting somebody else, you know, um, and, 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 and there is an underlying business model that does exist, but it's more qualitatively based and you can apply it in large and small shops, but I just don't know that we want to, and perhaps that's what you're getting at. I don't know that we have collectively as a fundraising community said, that we need to stand behind models that pretty much work for everyone. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm, I'm very privileged in that I'm currently looking after a community challenge event, legacy and individual giving program under the public fundraising banner. Um, and I, I have lots of conversations internally um, about the fact that an industry was built up mainly to support individual giving programs and acquisition campaigns for the last 25 30 years and through direct mail probably going back 
35, 40 years even. Yeah. Um, and I think it's very dangerous to kind of constantly say those channels are now dead. They don't work anymore. But sure. The one, but the wonder of what happened from the kind of mid to late nineties through to probably the mid to late teenies. Is that what we call the sort of 2015, 2016? <laughs> um, but they, they perpetuated a model of fundraising that was obviously creaking in terms of the representation you saw on the street was very much like maybe the top 25 to 30 charity brands could afford to do a face-to-face campaign by 2015, 16. They were putting a huge amount of pressure on the businesses that were providing that service to do it at a, a much more reduced cost. Therefore, the quality of the individuals that that agency can afford to employ and start people on and the time that they can afford to train them reduces because it's all about how many people can we get to interact with someone rather than the quality of the interaction. Um, And so it just drove it to a model that doesn't work anymore. Um, And I think you've seen some innovation around face to face, but not to the level that I would like to see because you've still got some businesses trying to do it through the traditional business model. Um, I think people want, you know, it's a bit like going to a restaurant. When I go to a restaurant, I don't want to eat the same thing every time. I want to be able to look at the menu and decide I'd quite like to eat that this evening because it suits the mood or the season or whatever it is that makes me decide to eat fish pie over a steak or, um, you know, anything else for that matter. But um, I think the human interaction of face-to-face is really, really important. Um, and I think if you get it right, what we need to start doing is having interactions where an individual that might want to partake in a challenge event, and, you know, if it, for example, if it was the London Marathon, that individual could raise you £2,500. Um, surely that has got to be from a business perspective, worked out as a model that would work for an agency and a charity relationship. You know, if you're willing to pay somebody that might give you five pounds a month um, for three years, then there's got to be a value that's attributable to somebody that could run a marathon for you or do a cake bake sale three or four times a year. You know, and I think it's I think, it, you know, that to me is more of a community fundraising model. And I think that's where you'll see face-to-face begin to kind of migrate towards if it survives. Um, but I think that there, you know, there was a really heartening, very public message from a very big agency that's a kind of creative agency called Open, um, which was set up probably 2000 and I think it's coming up for its 20th kind of anniversary so it's been set up in 2001 2000 and, no sorry 2000 and, anyway it doesn't matter how old open is the, 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 what matters is the message they sent out which is a statement of intent yep. to say pretty much what I'm saying in that article and in fact I I got in touch with one of the 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 founders of that agency and we've had a conversation about the fact that we're in a very similar headspace in terms of what needs to happen across the sector and that the first thing we need to start doing is engaging the sector and the leaders within the sector and the change makers to say how can we make this happen um how can we change the model 
that is no longer working and not giving our supporters a particularly good experience in interacting with us. Yeah, I've had some of the uh, several other people on here from from our friends at Open here on the podcast that right in the middle of the pandemic, I think they published a report that was I found very intriguing. And uh, and one of their people was on here. I forget her name, um, <clears throat> uh, but she uh, she was very sharp and on top of, of sort of what was transpiring in the UK as it relates to the pandemic. But but I think I what I also recall from that conversation, Sam, is um, it's sort of an awareness that per, and perhaps a uh, a suspicion. I remember thinking, okay, these people must be reading some of the same books that I am. Um, it, it's this idea of of what is social, what we understand to be social complexity, and that is as as we think about sort of um, transitioning away from analog and print to digital, um, but we carry with us the same underlying logic. And we simply just make a system more complex, but relying on the same underlying sort of modes of communication, we also dramatically, and this is what uh, theorist, social theorists would talk about how, how societies com- com- uh, collapse, is that when you add that additional layer of complexity and then some unpredictable sort of event like COVID-19 comes along or some sort of technical glitch comes along, it just causes the whole thing to sort of fall apart. And if you think about the way direct mail worked, for example, 40 years ago, it was a relatively simple system. So even though it was enormous in size, in, in terms of the volume of activity it was doing, it was very simple in terms of the multiple sort of players that were sort of executing the process. Well, now when everything goes to digital, it's a much more complex. There's far more players at the table, same level of volume, but highly more, you know, the science of collapse would tell us that highly more likely to completely just fall apart. And and we, we've known that about meltdowns and systems of all sorts of, you know, here in Pennsylvania, for example, that's the, that's the story behind our seven mile Island sort of, um, you know, a three mile Island. I'm sorry, the, the incident back in the seventies when the, you know, nuclear explosions and that sort of stuff. And I'm just sort of thinking, when is the fundraising community going to sort of wake up to the fact that they're setting themselves up for a nuclear explosion? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, th- again, you know, I think there's, there's an alarmist kind of element to all of this that um, it's a ticking time bomb. Is it about to kind of create this big, huge kind of yeah. explosion? I think that I'm, I'm more optimistic than that. Um, I think that there's a way in which we need to start migrating programs. You know, print is not good for the environment, number one. Um, and it's also a channel that, you know, my children don't have a subscription to a magazine. They very rarely bring something home to read other than maybe <laughs> a book that they're doing on um, their English courses. Most of what they consume is consumed through a computer or a mobile phone. Um, children across the world were probably being taught for 12 months through that you know what we're doing now kind of a, an online platform um you know we've just had some really interesting insight from our supporters on the fact that that would be something they would really enjoy having is some kind of learning platform that could afford them interesting insights around how play could be used to help them parent their own children 
Um, and I think that the pandemic just sped that up. I think lots of charities have probably been talking about providing their services through a digital platform for a very long time. It makes them much more inclusive. It means that they can reach people. It means that should something should they identify certain individuals that they can't reach because they don't have a device that they could provide them with a device in order to receive those services. So some really wonderful stuff around isolation, particularly in older members of society, where things like um, Google Voice and Amazon Echo type tech has been used to kind of give give the elderly some form of sense of connection um, if they're isolated in their own homes. So I think there's, you know, I think there's lots of positive ways in which we can see things changing already. I think one of the problems we face as a sector is digital becomes the buzzword. And suddenly it's like, you know, you don't just need a, an individual giving manager, you need a digital individual giving manager. And you don't just mm-hmm. need a community fundraiser, you need a digital community fundraiser. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I've been party and guilty of those conversations and actions over the last 18 months. But anyone that works in the fundraising sector in the UK worth employing should over the last 18, 19 months have really upskilled themselves or been upskilled by their organisation in digital capability. And there are specialists out there that want to work in partnership with you, maybe for a particular period of time where part of their service is to upskill your team. So, you know, I think there's there's lots to be said for the positives that are around, but I think there's always that kind of panic. And of course, those larger organisations are going to be probably able to offer slightly more money and they will probably monopolise a little bit of the digital talent that's out there and bring that into those organisations so that they continue to thrive. And if they're not, they should be because that's how they're going to continue to thrive. Um, But duplication is probably one of my biggest criticisms of the sector anyway. You know, I think that there are a lot of causes out there that do what a lot of other causes out there do you know and one of the one of the um significant changes to to the charity i'm currently at was that you know we were traditionally seen as a wish charity providing these moments and the pandemic mm-hmm. hit and we couldn't provide those wishes anymore and we pivoted to deliver and put all of our resources into the the side of the organization where we knew there was a greater need in terms of children that were going to be isolated in hospital for far greater periods of time than they ever have been before because they had to shield. Um, So, you know, all of those things are positive to me. They're positive changes. We're seeing positive things happen. Um, And I think that it's about, you know, one of the things that one of the problems I would say I'm kind of facing in my own um, kind of professional capabilities at the moment is how do you migrate people that have, received so much of one type of communication through one channel onto a new one you know that's that's a trick that if you know the answer to i'd love you to share it with me right now yeah Um, i think that's the and 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 that's a good lead into just asking that question is sort of a lead into your last point this idea of sort of braver voices and that old trends die hard um yeah i mean how do you answer that question for yourself in terms of how how do I answer that question? Yeah, I, yeah, I mean, if, if I'm that shop, out. if I'm that charity shop down the street, and I know I can never amount to a database as large as that 
mega shop down the, you know, around the corner. Um, and so I know the, the underlying system is flawed, but every time I show up at a conference, for example, the only people that are in the trade, you know, in the, in the exhibit hall and the only people that are standing up on the platform are advocating for the same model. Um, I mean, that's, that's essentially what you're getting at here in this fourth point is that we need braver voices out there, but perhaps yeah, I mean, we I've have got, to, I, I'm an ideas person. So creatively, I've got lots of ideas and actually your charity shop example, just made me suddenly think that my daughter has a she has an app called Debop, I think it's called, where she yeah. basically sells all the hip hop sporting gear that she no longer wants to use on that so that she can buy more hip hop sporting gear when she's sold it. <laughs> but if you know if an individual who's fifteen years old can be that enterprising to generate income for herself to be able to make her feel happier by having clothes that her mum and dad are refusing to buy her then then why can't a charity look at that kind of tech and it you know it is out there i get these kind of you know merch is something that we're very much going to be focusing on as part of our our three-year strategy at starlight um you know there are there are incredibly innovative people out there in the tech world and i think it's about engaging them as well i think there's there's definitely a future generation of philanthropists amongst those those individuals and sort of the, the entrepreneurs that are out there at the moment um, and not being afraid to trial it. You know, I think that's the biggest learning I've taken from the last two years, actually, is that um, I'm fortunate enough to have a leadership team that is willing for us to test and learn. Um, and actually, what I would say is that you learn more from the things that don't work than the things that do. Um, so those innovations are happening we'll see that happen um, but also just to engage those specialists that you know you you ask you brief them you ask them to meet that brief you have conversations about how you like to work culturally and your values as an organization and you find the right person to come in and help and assist you um, so I think you know I think you know, I've, I've cited a few people in that in the article. Um, I think there's some wonderful organisations out there where you know fundraising everywhere is is a is a really good mm -hmm. example of that. Where there's these little gems for charities, big and small, as to how you can start utilising tech to raise funds for your for your organisation. Um, so you know that's that's how I do it. I do it through the way that I always have done, which is to network and reach out and get in touch with people that pique my interest and that I feel are doing something that's forward thinking and unique and could buck the trend and be, you know, when you think back to face to face and that, that as a model, it was hard to get people to buy into it initially. And then you had this boom time where everybody wanted to do it. And then you had the, the criticism of the, of the media and everybody sort of backed off and dropped it. And you saw all these big agencies go under as a result. So Everything has a life cycle. I think it's just making sure that you're constantly looking at how you can improve your your fundraising through product development. That's how I'd approach this. Yeah, certainly a shout out to our friends at Fundraising Everywhere. Uh, Nikki, what Nikki and Simon were able to do, uh, I commend both of them for what they were able to do. I mean, some of the conversations and some of the things that you're alluding to throughout this conversation and certainly in your article, Sam, um, harken back to some of the very meaningful conversations 
that you and I both know they were facilitating on that on their platform yeah. in the midst of a pandemic um, when 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 that created an opportunity to have some of these more robust conversations and utilize the um, hyper connectedness that um, on platforms such as the one we're on here this morning. Um, Sam, it has certainly been a pleasure to catch up with you. We lose our listeners at about 45 minutes, so I'm going to um, I'm going to let you go. I do want to uh, remind our listeners that Sam's article come up. Come on up for the rising, uh, a courteous uh, reference to our our friend Mr. Springsteen, uh, Sam. We're going to put this in the. Sh- we're going to put a link to the article in the show notes so people can download your article in responsive's new winter edition of Carefully and Critically. But if they're interested in reaching out to you in particular, they want to continue the conversation, perhaps engage you in some particular way. How would you suggest that they do that? They can reach me on Twitter or LinkedIn. Um... And I'm, you know, I'm I'm a networker. So if anybody's listening and wants to reach out, learn more, if there's any agencies, third parties, individuals, consultants out there that feel they they may have something that they'd like to drop underneath my nose, please do. Um, and any any fundraisers out there that are interested in knowing how you can help your organisation to support you to be braver, um, please reach out as well because I could definitely help with that. Sam, it has been a pleasure to get to know you. We have gotten to know each other virtually for the last several years. Last time I was in the United Kingdom was in 2017. I'm anxious to get back. As soon as I'm in London again, we will be scheduling a time to have lunch. I will be buying and uh, very much looking forward to it. Thank you very much. Take care, Jason. Have you read the book that nonprofit leaders and fundraising professionals alike are calling a must read? In this pocket manifesto for today's fundraising professional, Jason deconstructs why many of us find ourselves working for organizations where we cannot accomplish our goals. These same organizations are notorious for rapid turnover and high donor attrition. To avoid this all too familiar path, Jason offers direction from those who want to be recognized and admired for their work. The war for fundraising talent challenges our ingrained beliefs and assumptions about how effective fundraising really works, and it questions the prevailing wisdom hiring decisions and donor behavior. Published by Gatekeepers Press, The War for Fundraising Talent is now available on Amazon and other major retailers. We want to thank you for listening to today's episode of the Fundraising Talent Podcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show and hope you will come back for next week's interview, where we will discuss with those on the front line who are defining what it means to be a fundraising professional. If you'd like to be a guest on the Fundraising Talent Podcast, visit our Facebook page or email Jason at jason at lewisfundraising.com. In your email, be sure to tell us about where you work and why you believe you would be a great addition to the upcoming lineup. Thank you again for joining us today, and we look forward to you being a part of the continuing conversation as we shape how the nonprofit sector thinks about fundraising talent.